Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. sermon series that is looking at the fruit of the Spirit. We've been working our way through the list, Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and this morning, faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. The passage we're going to look at to help us think about that is Luke's gospel chapter 4. And so that's the passage I want to invite you to turn to, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, page 859 or 1021 in the large print Bibles. Some of us will remember this. Some of us have looked at this before as we've been through Luke's Gospel. Uh, For many of us, this will be new this morning. And so let's hear God's, God's Word together. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. In song, in prayer, in spoken word, and above all else now, Heavenly Father, in living word, we long simply to meet with you, to see you, to love you, And as we love you, so to be changed by you. This is our prayer. Hear it and answer it, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A faithful man who can find. That's the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. A faithful man who can find. Six words. Only six words, but such drama in six words. Wouldn't you love to be known 
as a faithful man, as a faithful woman, to, to be known as a faithful friend, a faithful son or daughter, a faithful parent. Here's my own definition of what faithfulness is. One word into two words. Faithfulness is extreme reliability. Faithfulness is extreme reliability, like a Volvo car or a Toyota. Have you ever seen that in somebody you know, extreme reliability? I have. A person of extreme reliability is just always, 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 always there, aren't they? I think it's one of the most beautiful sights in all the world. And yet, oh, the drama. A faithful man, who can find? Scan your eyes throughout the earth looking for someone who never, ever, ever lets you down. Who always does what they say, who never fails you in any way, who never drops the ball, never misses a birthday, never forgets an anniversary, never says a harsh word to you or to anyone else, never serves themselves before you instead of you. I think we all know, don't we, that in our world, even the most extreme reliability is imperfect reliability at best. Let me ask you, where are you this morning? You're, you yourself on the scale of faithfulness. Some of us here have been broken by the unfaithfulness of others. And we sit here this morning angry, sore, afraid, resentful. We know that we're malfunctioning at some deep level. And it's because someone who said they'd be faithful trashed their promises. Some of us are shattered by our own unfaithfulness. We're sitting here ashamed, guilty, full of regret and remorse. Oh, the gulf that you feel between you and others this morning. The gulf that you feel between you and God, even. Surely God wants nothing to do with you. Surely. Some of us are at breaking point because of our faithfulness, a promise that we made that we are keeping, and it is costing us dear, costing us even, it feels often, our own very life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This is the Apostle Paul, remember, telling the Galatian Christians that they can change. You can change is what we've called this sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is telling these Galatians they can grow new Christ-likeness from the inside out. He's telling them that Christ's life can be formed in them. It can grow inside them and burst out and shine out like plants growing, like fruit hanging from branches. So how? I want to take us into Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 3 and 4. I want, us to, I want us to feel what hangs in the balance here. Three things to see. Number one, I want us to feel what hangs in the balance. 
in Luke chapter 4, something is hanging here, almost on the edge of a cliff, on a precipice. Secondly, I want us to cherish the faithfulness of Jesus. And thirdly, as we finish, I want us to water the soil where faithfulness grows. I want us to feel something this morning. I want us to cherish something. I want something about the Lord Jesus Christ to become very, very precious to us. And as we feel and as we cherish, to so leave and water, water the fruit. So number one, feel what hangs in the balance. It's very unusual for us. Our normal pattern is working through systematically through books of the Bible, letters in the Bible. It's very unusual for us to jump into a book like this, Luke's Gospel chapter 4. And so as we jump into a book at this particular point, here's what we need to know. This is a world where religious unfaithfulness is being hidden under a mask of religious faithfulness. That that is the world that Jesus is coming into here. I want you just to have your Bible open. Look back at chapter 3, verse 8. Let me say that again. This is a world of religious faithfulness that is masking, hiding a heart of unfaithfulness. Look what John the Baptist says to the crowds who came out to church, crowds who came to be baptized, chapter 3, verse 7. Here they come in all their religious garb and finery. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist has come preaching what? Look back at chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, just a few verses earlier. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Ah, that's what this is all about, you see. Here is a message for failures. That the message of the kingdom, friends, is for unfaithful people. Not for unfaithful people who are pretending to be faithful. No, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A message for failures. Look at verse 12. A message for financial failures, tax collectors. It means they were moral failures, robbing their own people to finance the enemy. A message of forgiveness, verse 14, for powerful failures. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? Men with muscle, men with clout, men who extort, men who accuse, men and women who harbor greed in the the hidden recesses of their heart. This is the world into which the Lord Jesus comes. It's like our world, isn't it? Don't be fooled, friends. Don't think you're reading something here that because it is thousands of years ago is culturally distant from us. It is not. All around us there are are failures like this. Here we are together this morning, failures. Unfaithful people. This is a world where church-going people have got so used to lying to God about their lives that they, they think He no longer notices He no longer cares. This is a world where people have got rich at the expense of the poor, where the powerful win and the weak lose. And into that world, what does Jesus do? What happens? Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, 
and Jesus also had been baptized. What does Jesus do? He comes to be identified with us. He comes to us, not away from us. I don't know if you can think about the last moment of significant unfaithfulness in your life, either someone to you or you to someone else. Didn't it create distance, a gap that had to be bridged somehow, a wound that had to be healed, a chasm that had to be overcome? What does Jesus do? He comes to the failures. He comes to be identified with us, with you, with me. He, he comes to a world of failures. But, oh, the canvas here for this story is so very big. No place in the inn, so he stoops to the shed. He's born to the shameful. He bends to the weak, becomes the lowly, the God who can't speak. And yet, what a word, this Savior who comes our dismal, abysmal depths he plums through crib and then cross to compass our life, to carry and conquer our brother in strife. He became what we are, our failures he shouldered to bring us to his life forever enfolded. He took on our frailty. He took on all comers to turn all our winters to glorious summers. So how does he do it? When we get to verse 22 of chapter 3, and the voice from heaven speaks, from that voice onwards, verse 22, right through to the end of what we read together, chapter 4, verse 13, what is the key word that is repeated again and again? That there is one word that Luke is shining a light on here. Luke is saying to us, I'm just going to repeat this so often. Can you hear it? Again and again. Do you see what the word is? Son. Son. Verse 22, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, son of, son of, son of, son of, all the way through the temptation story. What is the serpent saying to Jesus, if you are the son, if you are the son of God, if it's really you, this whole passage is about Jesus, the son of God. But now look, look what else Luke has done here. Along with this massive story, he's done something incredible here, something brilliant to make us stand back and see the scale of it. Where does the genealogy end? The, the kind of verses that we, we gloss over in chapter 3. Follow your eyes right down to the end of chapter 3. The son of Enos, the, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You know, I say it all the time. I seem to be saying it all the time in our house. Don't interrupt somebody when somebody else is speaking. We're meant to read from chapter 3 right into chapter 4. Ignore the big chapter 4, the big number. Read from verse 38 right down into verse 1 without interrupting the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And the devil said to him, if you are the son if you are the Son of God. When you read from chapter 3 straight into chapter 4, what you realize in chapter 4 
is that Jesus is not the only son of God in view here. Adam was the son of God. And Jesus is the son of God. There are two sons here. And more than that, friends, all the way through this passage, Jesus is answering the devil from the book of Deuteronomy, where Israel had been tested just like Jesus is being tested in the desert. Jesus is tested for 40 days. Israel was tested for 40 years. And in the Old Testament, Israel was called God's son. We're going to see it in Exodus in a few weeks. God, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go. Let my son go. Oh, friends, here is Jesus, the Son of God, striding center stage. Yes, the spotlight is on him. Make, make no mistake in chapter 4, but off in the wings are two other sons of God. It's masterful storytelling by Luke to link Jesus the Son all the way back to Israel the Son, to Adam the Son. How intriguing of Jesus to go off into the desert just like that other son, Israel. This is a big canvas story, and friends, this is the point this morning. Can you feel what hangs in the balance? Can you feel what hangs in the balance here? This is a conflict story, a battle story. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 3, that the devil comes to him at the end of the 40 days, seems to be at the end, that when he's most hungry, most weak, most vulnerable. And at this moment, something of epic proportions is poised on a knife edge. It's poised on a knife edge. Let me give you an illustration. I know, I know I've used this before. I think it takes us into this. Over 47 years ago, December 1975, my parents were waiting for me to be born. Christmas time. I was due at any day. I was going to be their first child. And they tell me that they wanted a son. They have to say that, don't they? After the fact. They wanted a boy waiting for a son. Now, as would-be parents, the questions in your mind are many, aren't they? You don't know what's coming, but at least in your mind is something like this. If we have a son, what kind of son will he be? What will he be like? Will he be a faithful son or an unfaithful son? Will he be obedient or disobedient? And then along I came, eventually arrived. 21st of December, you want to note it? And slow, slowly, they began to find answers to their questions, didn't they? Now fast forward a couple of years, July 1977, mom and dad expecting their second child. And this time, there are two questions in their mind. Not just, if we have another son, what kind of son will he be? But now, second question, will he be just like the first son? Or will he be different? Will he do what the first son does? Or will he strike a different path? November 1980. Well, you get it by now, don't you? Mom and dad waiting again for their third child. If God gives us a son again, what kind of son will he be? Will he be obedient? 
disobedient, faithful, unfaithful, and how will he compare to the first two sons? Friends, in our passage this morning, those are exactly the questions being asked. As we read, we are meant to read from the genealogy with Adam. Now we meet Israel again in the desert, but here is Jesus alone in the wilderness. What kind of son is he going to be? Will he be a faithful son or an unfaithful son? And will he be just like the first two sons? Will he be like Adam and be like Israel, or will he be different? What Luke is doing is using sonship to tell us the story of the whole Bible. See, open your Bible at the very beginning. We open it, don't we, in Genesis, Act 1. The the curtain comes up, and we watch as in God's perfect creation, his son is born, Adam. What kind of son is he going to be? We watch in horror, don't we, as Adam eats the forbidden fruit. He disobeys God's word. He rejects God's rule. And the beautiful garden set, what happens to it? It becomes a wilderness, a place of death. We keep reading our Bibles. We come to Act 2. Israel, also called God's son, we watch them go off into the desert with God leading them out ahead of them like Adam saying, I will feed you. I will be with you. Simply trust me. Obey me. What kind of son will Israel be? Will they be any different? Well, we watch in despair as Israel begins to grumble and complain. I listened this morning downstairs to our P6s and 7s being taught down the corridor. I could hear them being taught about idolatry. What does Israel do in the desert? Builds a golden calf. This son is no different from the first son. Now we come to the Gospels, Act 3. Luke takes up the story. Come and look with me, he says, at another son. And we watch as Jesus, the Son of God, goes alone into the desert. Adam and Israel have moved. They've been on stage and they're now in the wings. They've played their parts. They've done their roles. And now the spotlight falls on one man. What kind of son Will he be? Can he possibly stand where Adam fell? Will he succeed where Israel failed? Brothers and sisters, in Luke chapter 4, the salvation of the world hangs in the balance. It hangs in the balance. Your salvation, my salvation, are we to be damned forever is the question in Luke chapter 3. Are we lost? This is is a rerun story, but with a new main character. Is there anyone who can enter a world of failures and not himself be tempted, not himself trip and stumble and fall where every other human being has tripped and fallen? Can anyone enter a world of unfaithfulness and not become unfaithful? Can someone enter a world of failures and not fail? Here's the question, can this son undo the treason of the first son? And can he undo the carnage of the second son? Brothers and sisters, I want us this morning 
to cherish, cherish the faithfulness of Jesus. Simple goal of the sermon that you would leave this morning with a warmth in your heart, a warmth wrapped around the faithfulness of Christ. Cherish the faithfulness of the Son. Look at these temptations with me. All of them test His faithfulness in slightly different ways. They test Him to see what kind of Son He will be. Verses 3 and 4, the devil said, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to be bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is a Son who obeys God perfectly. He obeys God perfectly. Look at verses 5 to 8. Here is a son who serves God only. The devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said, I will give all of this to you. Worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Do you know what's happening in verses 5 to 8? The devil is tempting the Lord Jesus to do things his way, not God's way. He's tempting Jesus to go it alone. See, everything that the devil offers Jesus in verse 6, everything offered to him on a golden platter, God has already promised to give Jesus. It's the angel Gabriel to Mary, isn't it? He will be a king forever. God is going to give Jesus an eternal kingdom. He's going to give Jesus authority and glory and splendor. But, friends, it is all going to come after the cross. After the cross. Jesus will inherit, verse 6, after He dies and after He rises again and after He returns to His Father's right hand. You see what the devil is whispering to Jesus right here in the wilderness? Forget the cross. Forget the cross. I can give it to you now. Forget the suffering. Take the glory now. The pattern of the true son's life is suffering, then glory. Suffering first, then the kingdoms of the earth beneath his feet. And the serpent says, do you, do you really have to do the first bit? Just take the glory now. A son who obeys God perfectly, a son who serves God only. Verses, verses 9 to 13, a son who trusts God completely. A son who trusts God completely. Friends, do you see the pattern? Do you see what is hanging in the balance right here in this moment? What is hanging in the balance is the salvation of the world. What kind of son will he be? A son who serves, who obeys, who trusts. And so, friends, this morning, this is a son who is not like Adam, who is not like Israel. Brothers and sisters, he is not like me. He's not like you. 1st of January, 2024, a couple of months' time, a new film is coming out. I hope many of us are going to go and see this. Some of you have seen the trailer for it. The film is called One Life, and it's the true story of Nicholas Winton, Sir Nicholas Winton. It's, Nicholas Winton is played by Anthony Hopkins in the film. 
And the true story of Nicholas Winton is that as he was a young man in the 1930s, a young London broker, in 1938, he saw what was coming on the horizon. Amazingly, he saw the precipice that the world was on, and he rescued 669 children from the Nazis in the months leading up to the war. It's an amazing story, beautiful story. And yet, as beautiful as that story is, it has the most amazing event in it where 50 years later, 1988, Sir Nicholas Winton is brought to a TV studio for a That's Life show. And this unassuming man thinks that he's an ordinary member of the audience. But of course, as the show unfolds and he realizes that the show is all about the story of what he did all those years ago. And there is this most amazing moment where the host says, sitting at her desk in the studio, she looks at the studio audience. I guess it's like, like you look to me this morning. She looks at the audience and she says, can I ask, is there anybody in the audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? And of course, all around him in the studio, the hands go up. The whole audience has been made up of the very children that Nicholas Winton saved, rescued, now grown up into adulthood. And you see the reality of his rescue in real time, flesh and blood. It's a profoundly moving moment. One life to save the world is his phrase throughout the story. One life to save the world. Brothers and sisters, do you know as you sit here this morning that you owe your life to the faithfulness of the Son. The faithfulness of Christ. His faithfulness, not your own faithfulness. And so, friends, thirdly, here is the soil where faithfulness grows. This is the soil where your faithfulness grows, my faithfulness grows. We want to swap unfaithfulness for faithfulness, you can do it. Let, let Jesus swap it for you. The only unfaithfulness he ever knew was mine and yours. The only true faithfulness you and I know is his. A faithful man who can find. Wouldn't it be lovely to be known as being faithful? The Apostle Paul called Timothy his faithful child in the Lord. He calls Tychicus a faithful minister and a fellow servant. Peter calls Silvanus a faithful brother. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely to have that said of you? Ah, there's faithful Frank over there. There's Sue, our faithful servant. It, it can be done. It can be said, and the soil where that grows, friends, the soil where it grows is not your effort this morning, is not your faithfulness, but Christ's faithfulness. So how do we water it? How do we cause it to grow? I want to suggest two very simple things. Here's the first thing we need to do. If you want to water, put pop a seed in the ground and see it grow, the first thing we need to do is change the record. Change the record. 
Some of us are sitting here right now this morning with a record playing in our head, and it's the record that we play every Sunday. What does God think of me? Answer, failure. I've blown it. Friends, people say to me, this might amaze some of you, people say to me, you you don't know me, David. I'm not faithful. Sometimes people literally say, standing in this room, oh, I'm not like them, and they point to so-and-so across the room, someone who they regard as a really faithful Christian, a proper Christian. And yet, I know that person. They've said to me, they're just comparing themselves to somebody else further up the room. No, friends, brothers, sisters, this morning, one life to save the world. One life to save the world. There is only, only one person of extreme reliability. Christ, the Son, the last Adam, our Savior. It's time to change the record. Not what does God think of me? Here's your new question. Water this all week long, friends. What does God think of Jesus? What does God think of His Son? That's your new question to ask today. One theologian said this. I love these words. In Jesus, perfect life and death. In His, and let's, let's put Luke 4 into that. In His faithfulness in the wilderness. In, in every single part of His faithful, obedient life. In His perfect life and death. God was more satisfied than in all of the blood that had ever run down Israel's altars. It is this whole life and not just his death that is offered up to the Father as a sacrifice for sin and the justification of the ungodly. What does God think of Jesus? You know, it's possible that for some of us here this morning, we're the opposite. Thinking of ourselves as unfaithful is the very last thing that ever enters our mind. I guess maybe we're attractive, we're, we're gifted, we're extremely capable, we have a good job, a good home, stable, loving relationships. What could there possibly be about us that makes us unfaithful? I want to say this morning that people who do not see their own unfaithfulness never see Jesus clearly. People who don't see failure around them never see Christ properly. If you haven't ever discovered where you've failed, where you've let people down, where you've let God down, then you will not discover who Christ is. For He did not come to improve us or to tweak us or to supplement us or to add bits onto us. He came to rescue us, to save us. People who think they haven't failed always think they do not need a Savior. But off the pages of Luke 4, friends, strides a champion. Off the pages of Luke's gospel strides a hero, a a warrior king who goes alone into the desert, the eternal son, now clothed in frail flesh. And he is there in the desert to fight, to fight for you, to fight for me, to obey, to serve, to trust, to be faithful on our behalf. This is how God works in the Bible, showing us His faithfulness more than our unfaithfulness. 
I read a lovely phrase this week. Somebody I read said that God is like a loving parent, I guess this is with teenagers, who leaves a, stale of, a trail of sticky notes through the house, telling them what they need to remember. Remember your instrument. Take your packed lunch. Where are you going this evening? You need to be here at this time. I guess we do it with texts and family WhatsApp groups now, don't we, rather than sticky notes. But message after message after message, reminding, reminding, the parent reminding the child, don't forget. And friends, the Bible is full of it. Do you remember the Sabbath given at the beginning to rest, to trust? Weekly Sabbath, week after week, the Lord's day. Lay down your working hands. Remember God's faithfulness. You do not need to strive and work and act and think you need to run the world. No, rest. God is faithful. Joshua raises a memorial stone all the way through the Bible, memorial stones raised to God's faithfulness. An Ebenezer is what it's called. The feast days in the Jewish calendar were memory aids to God's faithfulness. Every single baptism you see, every Lord's Supper you see, they are, they are God's sticky notes. And there is a trail of them behind us in history. Do you know what's beautiful? There is a trail of them behind you in your life, isn't there? Faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness. Somebody has said the Bible itself, that book, that digital screen sitting on your lap, friends, that Bible, somebody has said, is an Ebenezer. It is a memorial stone to the faithfulness of God, carefully recorded and preserved for us. Friends, turn to it. Gaze on it when you're lost in other people's unfaithfulness. Psalm 119, your faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. You see that? Faithfulness goes through time. Faithfulness goes through, goes through space. And here's the second thing. I want to just finish with this very briefly on faithfulness. Let the Bible teach you the power of plodding. Let the Bible teach you the power of plodding. Change the record. Secondly, learn the power of plodding. You know the thing about faithfulness? Faithfulness is spectacular in the long haul, isn't it? You look back, wow, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It's, it's, the, it's the length of it that makes faithfulness spectacular. But faithfulness is ordinary in the moment, isn't it? Faithfulness is spectacular in the long haul, but ordinary in the moment. Friends, if you want to water the soil of faithfulness, start small. Just show up. Just show up. Just stick in with the things you're meant to. There's a new book out with just that title, Just Show Up. The subtitle is How Small Acts of Faithfulness Can Change the World. Do you know what makes great churches? Do you know what makes what Sinclair was telling us about in Philippians, a joy and crown church? What do people tend to say? Take your pick from big numbers, great music, effective outreach. No, what makes great churches is faithful presence. The faithful presence of ordinary sheep, simple as that. 
in a digital age where everything is depersonalized, where commitments are thin, where people move on and move out quickly, people who are simply all in, all in, are the very heartbeat of a happy, healthy church. Is that you? In your life, in your relationships, where God has placed you, are you all in? Let me finish with this, these words to close, Jonathan Landry Cruz, a book that many of us have been reading. Faithfulness is so manifest in Jesus that when He comes again in glory, the whole world will call Him faithful and true. And so, dear Christian friend, that means He is not going anywhere. His faithfulness is as an ocean without brim or bottom. His faithfulness is as high as heaven. It is as long as eternity, and it is as big as God Himself. Jesus goes with you all the way. He never leaves our side. He never gets distracted. He never has to take another appointment. He never grows weary. He never gives up. His is a love that truly never fails. So if you are ever worried that Jesus might fail you, like that one spouse, that one friend, that one business partner, friend, take to heart these words today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.